Between the Covers is supported in part by Mislexia Magazine, the UK's best-selling magazine for women who write. Read by top authors and absolute beginners, no other magazine provides Mislexia's unique mix of inspirational and thought-provoking articles, advice, reviews, and interviews, as well as extensive listings for competitions, open submissions, courses, and grants. All this, plus a showcase of poems and stories from some of the best women writers working today. Issue 79 is out now, featuring writing from Mina Kandasami, Jackie Kay, Ruby Tando, and A.M. Holmes. Find Ms. Lexia on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Ms. Lexia, or visit mislexia.co.uk to subscribe from just £19.99 per year. Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is my conversation with R.O. Kwan about her debut novel, The Incendiaries. Before we begin, I just want to remind you that Between the Covers is still a listener-supported labor of love. I'm still the one-man band making it happen, and you can still go to patreon.com slash between the covers and support the show if you find these conversations fulfilling. Enjoy today's program. Stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is novelist R.O. Kwan. A graduate of Yale and the MFA program at Brooklyn College, Kwan's writing has appeared in Tin House, Vice, Noon, The Believer, The Guardian, New York Magazine, and elsewhere. She's a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow, was a 2014 Steinbeck Fellow at the Martha Heasley Cox Center, and has been named one of Narrative's 30 Below 30 writers. She's also the author of one of the most buzzed about and critically acclaimed books of 2018, The Incendiaries, out with Riverhead Books. Lauren Groff calls The Incendiaries a God-haunted, willful, strange book written with a kind of savage elegance. The Paris Review says every page of The Incendiaries blooms with sensuous language. The New Yorker says, 
with a fairy tale quality reminiscent of Donna Tartt's The Secret History, The Incendiaries is the rare depiction of belief that doesn't kill the thing it aspires to by trying too hard. It makes a space and then steps away to let the mystery in. Anthony Domestico says in Commonweal, in strikingly Augustinian fashion, Quan returns again and again to how the true motor of faith is desire, desire for meaning, beauty, healing, peace. She also shows how this desire continues perhaps even more powerfully once faith has left us. And Viet Thanh Nguyen adds, every explosive requires a fuse. That's Aro Kwan's novel, a straight, slow-burning fuse. To read her novel is to follow an inexorable flame coming closer and closer to the object it will detonate, the characters, the crime, the story, and ultimately, the reader. Welcome to Between the Covers, R.O. Kwan. Thank you so much for having me. So Toni Morrison has a quote. If there's a book you really want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And it seems like you've sort of taken this advice to heart. You've said in many interviews that the portrayal of the loss of faith is something that is hard to find in literature, and that this what you describe as a God-shaped hole in your own life from this loss of faith, the absence that your life orbits around is not something that you've recognized in, in what you've read. And I, I was curious if there are books, however imperfect, that were addressing faith, maybe not satisfactorily, that sort of prompted this desire? Or were you really in uncharted waters when, when you started writing The Incendiaries and, and write the thing that you, that you didn't see? Um, that's a great question. I think, so I think when I've talked about not having found literature that, um, grappled with faith and the loss of faith and having questions of faith, um, that was more when I was 17 and hadn't come across, um, and hadn't read quite as broadly. Since then, I've come across more of it. It's still not like the most explored, um, of subjects in, in, in fiction, but I love, I mean, I love what, I love what Graham Greene writes about faith. Um, I love, James Wood has written really movingly about his own experiences with faith. Um, let's see. There are other ways in which there are just, there are a lot of glimpses. Anne Carson um, mm-hmm. has written gorgeously about, about her experiences with belief and her, and the ways in which she approaches it. I love Simone Vale. Um, she's, of course she, she believed, but even so the ways in which she believed um, are, I, I find to be very, recognizable and moving. Um, I'm missing a bunch of people, but I love what Clarissa Spector says about the idea of God and notions of God. Um, there are more. That's a pretty good list. actually. (laughs) So, so the book looks at faith through three lenses, that of Will, a college age boy who's lost his faith. And then we have his girlfriend, Phoebe, um, who may be finding hers, and the cult leader, John Leal, who has created a community that has sort of captivated Phoebe's um, imagination. But given how much you've spoken about how your own biography has been the fuel for this examination of what it means to believe and then to have belief disappear, could we start with a look at of your life of faith, what it looked like for you growing up in your family? Yeah, of course. Um, so I was raised Catholic. Uh, my family's still deeply Catholic. Um, and then when I was in junior high, high school, I started veering off into um, more sort of off-brand, ecstatic 
kinds of Protestantism. Sort of what you would imagine with people talking in tongues and falling to the ground and dancing and singing. Um, And I think part of it is that that's the kind of Christianity that most of my friends were involved in. And also, it was just so fun, you know. Um, It was, it brought me into regular communion with um, with the ecstatic in a way that in a way that growing up in a small town outside of LA wasn't necessarily always available. I became increasingly religious. Um, I believed that I would become a missionary or a pastor. Um, and then when I was 17, I lost the faith. And yeah, and since then, I haven't really, I haven't, I've, I've been, I've been out of the fold. So the pivoting from your family's Catholicism to this branch of Protestantism was was based on something more to do with your own community of of, of friends that you were with. Yeah, and it wasn't um, for me at least. It wasn't mutually ex- exclusive. I was still going to mass with my family, and then I would um, on Friday night go to youth rallies with my friends, and Wednesdays and Saturdays. And, <laughs> yeah, um, but and it, but it sounded like it had some really at the time, at least, very positive effects. Like you've described how you didn't have anxiety, for instance. Yeah. um, And I wouldn't say I had no anxiety, but I was a much less anxious animal than I am now. Um, Because I did believe that, or I wanted to believe at least when I couldn't necessarily believe, I more or less believed that there was an omnipotent um, being who was watching over everything, would make everything all right. And that there was no death and I would never lose anyone I loved. And that was such a different way to live than, than how I live now. Yeah. And the, the branch that you went into was different enough from Catholicism that your, your family was concerned that it might have been a cult, even though you didn't consider it one and it wasn't considered one. It wasn't the branch itself. Um, it was just one of the churches that I would visit with my friends. Um, what had a youth group that was absorbing enough that my parents were a little worried. Um, yeah. A lot of parents were a little worried, but it really wasn't. It was just, um, it was just more able to keep more of our attention, I'd say, than, than some of the other youth groups. I would love to talk about cults and specifically the cult in the incendiaries. I would love to start with John Leal, the cult leader. Um, you said you did a lot of research on cults, but then ultimately abandoned a lot of the research because you wanted the, the cult that you created in the book to sort of stand on its own terms. So I was hoping maybe we could start with a description of the personal mythology of John Leal's past that is so compelling to people. The story that he tells his followers um, is that he went off to Yanji in China, which is a border town, and where, in fact, there are a lot of, um, that is where a lot of refugees end up because there's a river between China and North Korea. um, And when it's frozen, you can cross it. And it it's, it's, it's a nexus for a lot of refugees and a lot of pe- people who want to help refugees. The story that he tells is that he went there and he was helping refugees in that, um, and that he was kidnapped and taken across the border to North Korean Gulag, where he stayed for some months and then, and then was brought back to the border and just told to cross back. And um, I think there's a, there's a, he paints himself as a hero um, and a kind of outsized hero in a way that I think his followers end up finding to be very appealing. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the rituals and activities that are created in in his uh, group that if you become a member, become part of your existence and part of your daily uh, activities when you're you're in the group? At first, it seems 
like not much, you know, for a while they really do sit around, um, studying the Bible, listening to music, eating together. And then it's only after a while that the activities start intensifying and there are physical rituals that he asks of his followers. Um, there are, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, sorry, I'm, I haven't, um, I haven't, I haven't described this to anyone before. So I'm trying to talk, think about how to describe it without, because I know people get so mad about spoilers. Um, um, well, one of the things that comes to mind to me is the digging of a hole and then the filling of it back up. Yeah. I mean, even though that it doesn't serve any like utilitarian purpose in a way it sort of does in terms of community building because mm -hmm. they get this task and then there's almost, it almost feels like there's a meaninglessness to the task, like, a, mm -hmm. but it's also sort of like a Zen koan in a sense, mm -hmm. like you're going to do this together mm -hmm. and then it's going to, you're going to be in a different place. Yeah. 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 That's so lovely. And there's also something I think to that task of, of asking his followers to commit themselves over and over again to doing things that don't necessarily make sense to them. When, when you were writing this book, um, did you do a lot of research about Christianity in Korea? Mm. Or did you already know a lot about the history of Christianity in Korea? Because I've always been curious mm. why uh, Christianity took such a hold in, in Korea compared to other countries in the region. Yeah, um, I read, I, I did do research into Christ Christianity into Korea, less so than... Um, Less so than some of my research into culture and into radical groups and into the history of abortion rights, reproductive rights in America, um, just because Korea itself does play less of a role in um, in the book. Um, there's a, a variety of explanations for why Christianity did take a hold in Korea. I will say, though, that um, it still didn't take that much of a hold. I mean, I think the last time I saw the, the numbers, it's maybe 30 percent of Koreans are, are Christian, um, yeah. Korean Koreans in Korea. It's more like 80% in the U.S., Korean-Americans. But, but that's so. still pretty high, 30% yeah. in South Korea. Yeah, 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 yeah. given it it wasn't there at all um, at a certain point. But, um, I mean, there there's a variety of reasons that I've read. Um, one is that they Christians got very involved in um, in fighting against communists in South Korea. And so that was, that was one way that they started um, attracting followers. Mm-hmm. Um, they built a lot of schools um, that that became that became appealing. And the little bit that I was looking into, just out of my own curiosity in reading the book, was even um, even in the 19th century, uh, Pyongyang was considered the Jerusalem of the East because of the number of churches it had. Mm -hmm. I mean, they only I think Korea was like two percent Christian at the time, but mm -hmm. instead of thirty percent now, but still then there was some sort of um, something that was particularly Korean that wasn't happening in China or Japan. And there are also ways in which, I mean, in Japan, they, from what I've read, um, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on this. I mean, not that I'm an expert at all on um, Christianity in Korea, but from what I've read in Japan, um, they were very, very opposed to let allowing Christians and Christianity into, into the country. Mm. Um, but I, I did come across the number at some point. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if this is still true, but at least at, at a certain point, um, South Korea was sending more, missionaries abroad um, than any country but the U.S. And that was in absolute numbers, not in relative numbers, which, wow. of course, is huge given South Korea is so, um, so small in terms of the size of its population. Ha have you ever seen the movie Secret Sunshine? Uh, no, I haven't. By Lee Chang-dong. So the reason I thought of it is not only because it has a portrayal of Christianity in Korea, mm -hmm. but also the main character goes through 
getting faith and then losing faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But what is happening with that main character reminds me a little bit of what's happening with Phoebe and the incendiaries in the sense that the faith that the person gets in this in secret sunshine and loses is a, is happening right after the death of someone very close to them. Mm-hmm. And it seems like with Phoebe, um, perhaps the fact that she's in mourning mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. somebody very close to her has, has died mm-hmm. and her life is destabilized, that maybe there's some connection between this vulnerability and this, uh, this openness to accepting faith. I was hoping you could talk to us maybe a little bit about Phoebe as a character, mm-hmm. per- particularly the way you see, if you do, her mother's death being connected to somehow an attraction to, to John Leal's cult. I think when people, um, I hesitate to generalize, but for my characters, um, and for me certainly, when people are, when these characters are grieving, when they're, when they're feeling, when they're feeling pain, um, they become open, more open to change perhaps than people who are feeling relatively contented and relaxed and feel as though things are, things are going pretty well, um, and so they become open to different kinds of answers to the questions that they might have. Um, and Phoebe is in a great deal of pain when she comes to um, Knoxhurst to the college town where um, where much of the book is set. And that that does make her that does make her um, more vulnerable to to someone like John Leal. Um, maybe you could read this one little section that I marked out. Um... On page 149. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It wasn't that Christianity fetishized pain or exalted it. What point could there be in glorifying something so available? It would be like exalting oxygen. But the faith did recognize the potential effect of pain, how it can, with most of us, open what's closed. Like cut flesh, we become available to excluded possibilities. Light enters in the injured place, he said that the bones which he hath broken might rejoice. We've been listening to R.O. Kwan read from The Incendiaries. So sort of as a, a mirror image to this quote, you said that your your loss of faith was, was a devastating loss, one that causes enduring pain, and that there was no precipitating event, that it happened both suddenly and, and gradually, or gradually and then all of a sudden. Um, but do you feel like the pain of the absence of faith also opens something that is closed, uh, mm. that it makes available excluded possibilities, or is it only unidirectional in that sense? Like when mm. we talk about John Leal's twinning of pain and opportunity, essentially, mm-hmm. um, do you, how, how's, what's your orientation to, to um, the loss of faith and the pain? That's such an interesting question. No one's asked that. Um... I will say, but this this would be natural, um, or this would be obvious, perhaps. I, after I lost my faith, I did become a very different person, you know, um, just like from the top to the bottom of the kinds of things I believed. Um, I probably would have, and this is so horrifying to me now, but I probably would have identified as a Republican um, in high school and insofar as I, th- I really thought about it. And now, of course, I'm a... Um, you know, I, I couldn't possibly be more progressive, I think. Um, and so there are the ways in which I've, I've like very much changed in my values. Um, since losing my faith, I've learned to, and I try to take more joy 
I've tried to find more value in ephemeral joys that I might not have appreciated as much when, when I believe that I would live forever. Um, and to, and to feel, try to feel less grief about their, about how, about how fleeting they are. You've mentioned also that reading played a role in you drifting from Christianity. Was there a, was it just reading in general or were there like certain pivotal books that sort of cracked the system and broke it? Um, I love how you word that. I, it was just reading in general. It was just spending so very much time because I, I loved reading. It was, it was my favorite thing to do. Um, it, spending so much time in the heads of people who weren't like me and who didn't believe as I did, it just became increasingly difficult to believe that anyone who didn't believe what I believed um, about how the world worked would be, would was doomed to burn in hellfire. And you've also said um, Anne Carson's Eros is where the novel began, and I was I was wondering how how so. I don't really know, and this um this this breaks my heart. Um, I it's just that I was reading Eros and I was loving it, and I'm just like falling in love with Anne Carson. Um, and I was in grad school, and I just remember I I was like taking notes on, you know, I was scribbling all over the page, taking notes all over. Um, and there was something about that book and its focus on the Sappho fragment that she, that she centers the book on, um, that meant a great deal to me and about love and about, um, and about not quite being able to have what you love. And anyway, but I lost that book, um, because in a fit of, um, in a fit of, drunken exuberance I had a dear friend over and I and I usually don't lend books that mean a lot to me for exactly this reason I lent him this book because he hadn't read it yet um and then he lost it <laughs> is he still your friend uh we're, we're still friends um but 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 I I haven't lent out books that mean a lot to me ever since because I know that that's what um happens with books you lend out if you lend out a book you have to assume it's a gift like it's it's probably never coming back yeah I think that the New Yorker is, is really apt in the way they describe the book is, as a as a rare depiction of belief that doesn't kill the thing it aspires to, that you make this space and then step away to let in the mystery. Um, there are, um, are ways in which the book is constructed that sort of creates this alluring yet undefinable and untouchable space of mystery, I think. And one of them is that we seemingly get three points of view but really they're all filtered through the recollection of one point of view, Will's. So even though we think we are in Phoebe's point of view or sort of in Phoebe's point of view, we really are in Will's comprehension of Phoebe. And Will, I don't think, really understands himself that well, let alone his girlfriend. So there's a way in which the book and Will seems to be grasping towards something that is undefinable and maybe not unknowable, but at least it's not known. And I know that other interviewers have probed about the meaning of this setup. I think the setup's really effective because I feel like it doubles down on this question of faith and mystery uh, and allowing the mystery to live. Um, And some of these other interviewers, and and I would include myself in this, thought there was a deeper meaning structurally to the story that it's the story of a Korean American woman sort of ineffectually told by a white mm. man's over f- the framing is of the white man who's sort of inadequately able to tell the story. 
But it also seemed like in a lot of these conversations, that's not really something that was in, intentional, but maybe this was more through a process of trial and error and drafting around voice that you ended up with this structure. So I, I would love to hear, because it's really strange, this this way in which we switch points of view, but we almost, in another sense, don't ever switch point of view. Yeah, no, it, it very much was trial and error because... Um... As you as you may already have read, um, the the book really did start with just Phoebe, um, and that was how I originally thought that the book was going to be told by having her tell the whole story. Um, and then I found that she just goes through so much; um, she loses so very much, and then she believes she gains a great deal. And the book felt very spiky to me when t- when thought of that way, um, just like too many ups and downs, up, ups and downs, um, and. I found that letting someone who loved Phoebe but wasn't at the center of the action, letting someone else tell a lot of the story, um, just let more air into the room, let more air into the book. It changed, um, it expanded the repertoire of what kinds of registers I could I could hit um, and feel emotionally truthful about, but yeah. And it strangely made it harder to know the characters and increased the desire to know the characters at the same time. There was this like sort of friction and tension that I thought was really productive. Mm. Kind of like I would imagine like um, wanting to know God mm. and not ever being able to know God. Mm. So like I, I think Will is earnest mm. in wanting to know Phoebe and Phoebe and Will are both wanting to understand the cult, but the amount of understanding that is there feels like it's just beyond the page. I love that so much. That's, <laughs> that's so great. Um, yeah, I have nothing to add except that. I love that. <laughs> Speaking of this, this question of, of, of whiteness in the book, um, it's interesting to me that the, that Phoebe's friends call her the, the whitest Asian girl they've ever met mm. and that John Leal thinks this is a form of self-hatred. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess, or I imagine that this must've been seductive to her, mm. um, j- not just joining the group because of the other things uh, that the group provides, but also as a means to reclaim something about herself mm. or to reorient herself to a sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just wondering if you could maybe speak to that a little bit. I saw it myself, certainly. Um, I, I didn't quite experience it myself because I, I had the strange good luck of growing up in a town that um, was, well, my high school was 80% Asian, roughly, um, and a majority of that was Korean. And so I grew up in a high school in which Korean, I'm Korean American, was offered as an elective, a um, language elective. Um, mm. And people who weren't Korean took the Korean elective in part because they wanted to understand, like, what people were saying when they were talking shit in Korean (laughs) (laughs) during lunch, you know? Um, and so learn that in the class, uh, I think less so maybe, (laughs) but it just meant that, um, I never had the experience for instance of like opening my lunchbox and as a kid, um, and having people make fun of me because there was Mm -hmm. kimchi and Korean food, you know? Um, and so I didn't grow up with that kind of shame about who I was. And then, I went to college and I met so many people who did grow up with that kind of shame. Um, and I went to college in a place where I started experiencing what it firsthand, what it meant to be part of a minority group in America. Um, and so, yeah, I think for Phoebe, it is, I think you're absolutely right that it is very seductive to her that, um, that John Neal is, is, is both 
seeing a kind of shame that she perhaps hasn't acknowledged um, and and showing her ways in which she shouldn't feel shame. One of the other ways in which I feel like the story is naturally mysterious and creates space for this unknowableness is, is that we have the uh, country North Korea as part of it. And I would like to hear about your your um, decisions around North Korea, because obviously we all have sort of limited information, uh, limited firsthand accounts at this point. Um, so I was wondering how much research you did regarding North Korea and how much you uh, wanted to leave it sort of um, in the space of the imagined or the unimagined. Yeah, um, it was it was of the utmost importance to me that the book not try to make claims about North Korea as an entity. Um, and yeah, I did, I did do a lot of research, but it wasn't, it wasn't because I was thinking, Oh, maybe I'll write about North Korea. Um, it was just that I had a family, I had family history in North Korea. Um, and I think I wanted to know about these distant family members who I was, who I knew nothing else about otherwise. Um, and, when North Korea started sort of making its way into the book, which is more how it fell, it was more that John Lyle started taking on this North Korean past. Um, I very much wanted to leave space around anything I said about North Korea um, and to and to sort of depict that unknowing itself, to depict that uncertainty itself. Um, I didn't want anyone to walk away from this book thinking, okay, yeah, like, I really know a lot about North Korea now. Um, I, yeah. I, I felt that there are... Uh, I felt and feel that there are a lot of responsibilities that come with even fictionally depicting a place um, when there are so few depictions available outside of the country itself of the place. Well, what sort of, if any, family stories did you grow up about North Korea? So that's, um, I think that's part of why I went, in, went on the spree of reading about North Korea. Um no one ever really talked about it. It wasn't a. It wasn't a thing. It was just that my, I had ancestors who um, had fled what's now North Korea, but of course then it was just one country, um, who had fled what's now North Korea before the start of the Korean War, um, and so there was there was just like a d detachment and divide from all of it. But that meant that I have, or had distant family members I've never met who um, who were or are still there. But was there, do you think that silence in your family was a, a taboo that wasn't approached or was it just a lack of focus on that? I'm not really sure. It's really, um, it's hard to tell. My, um, this is true of a lot of Korean families. Um, my parents tend not to talk about the past. Um, even just the most basic questions like, why did we immigrate here? Um, and they always say, well, it was for your education. Um, and and I, and I know that that's true, um, and education's always been very important to them, but my entire family, um, including like every single one of my cousins, all my aunts and uncles, like we all moved here um, within something like a 10 year, 10 year period. Um, and, and it wasn't, and it, and it wasn't as though, um, well, how to put this? It wasn't as though they were they were starving in South Korea or anything. My father had a had a lot of friends in Korea. He'd gone to school there. Um, he was 
he was working at Hyundai. Like he, um, he had like a life, um, but they, they all uprooted themselves and came. And the, the only story I've ever heard is that it was just for our educations. Um, Mm. but that I don't think is the entire, I don't think that's the only reason why. Um, and I haven't, but I haven't heard otherwise. And if I ask, they still say, Oh no, no, honey, it was for your education. Don't worry about it. (laughs) And is there, there's no, um, anxiety about you, uh, investigating North Korea or putting it in the book from a, from a family perspective necessarily? No, not at all. They, um, my family has very little, they just don't, they both don't really talk about the past and they don't really exhibit anxiety about it, which is really interesting yeah. to me. It's not as though, it's not as though I feel, I grew up feeling as though there were, there was a, an abyss of pain that I, um, that they were shielding me from. Um, but it, it does extend even so far as like my grandmother won't talk about the Korean War and, and what happened, and she'll just say, "Don't worry about it." Like it's not, you know, it was it was fine, and it's just like, I've and, I've, and I'm just like I've read about the Korean War, like shit went down. Um, but what's, but they, what's weird to me is uh, in the culture at large, it doesn't feel like the Korean War even gets acknowledged hmm. as a war. Like I I think of you know America will, I mean if we think about films about Vietnam or hmm. films about World War Two. It feels strange to me the absence of sort of a, a cultural or political or ethical engagement with that war even having happened. Yeah, I, it, I, it feels mm. there feels to be a. I mean, there's not a silence around North Korea now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I would imagine that most non-Korean Americans could say very little about what happened in the Korean War. Yeah, and it's. Perhaps especially strange, given that the U.S. still has a military presence um, in South Korea. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the essay you wrote about the Olympics? Sure. Um, I just wrote that because um, I, I I don't usually watch a lot of sports, but I, I tend to love watching the Olympics. Um, there's something about... I think there's something about these like short bursts of people's lifelong hopes being displayed on the screen that I find to be tremendously moving, um, and as a lot of people do. And I was trying to watch the um, the Olympics this time around, and I and like almost as soon as I started trying, I, I started crying. Um, and there was something about when they had um, the two Koreas come in together. It 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 felt incredibly p- painful to see a sort of display of unity that um that felt very different from from the reality especially then of of what of, of the relationship between the two koreas did you also mention in the piece that that terrible comment about japan oh god yes i think i touched on that oh my god yeah um i've forgotten his name but the the person um, the, 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 the Olympics commentator, um, who said that, oh God, I'm going to paraphrase, but whatever, it, it, it was awful that, that, that South Korea, um, really admires Japan and has learned a great deal from Japan and looks up to Japan or something. It was something along those lines. I mean, yeah. it was from what I heard, it was front page news in, in Korea. And I believe the commentator was fired because what on earth? I mean, there's just like the sheer level of ignorance. But I someone. would, but I might argue that that ignorance is really widespread. Like I mm. wonder, and maybe this touches back to something about the, the Korean war and the circumstances of it. And even, and then obviously Korean history before the war, being not prominent in non-Koreans minds in America. Like Mm -hmm. I would imagine most Americans would have to go look why that was so 
terribly that they would have to go look to to know why that was such a terrible comment to make. And that um and and that that could be the case, but I think part of what outraged so many people was that it was the it was the commentator for that network um on the Olympics taking place in in Korea. So that was what was just so yeah. that was what was uh, what was outrageous. Like well, it wasn't it, the ignorance itself. It was just like for heaven's sake, find someone who knows something like just a just a tiny bit about uh, <laughs> could you not find a Korean American for instance? Yeah. Um could you not find a Korean American? Well, the ignorance isn't defensible either ultimately, I don't think. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to also touch on around North Korea is you set up a parallel, I think a structural parallel at the beginning of the book that you just touch on, but I thought it was interesting. You you sort of characterize the belief system in North Korea as one sharing structural characteristics with that of faith uh, in the opening pages. Mm -hmm. In, In speaking of John Leal in the Gulag, you say, punished for absurdities, they still maintained that the beloved sovereign a divine being couldn't be to could not be to blame. The refugees he'd met in Yanji talked of loving the god they'd fled. They attributed the regime's troubles to anyone but the sole person in charge. And in a way, it feels like that. While that's a description of their relationship to the the beloved sovereign or or the divine being leading North Korea, it also seems to implicate Christianity, mm. because uh, in the sense that you blame everyone but the soul being in charge. So mm-hmm. in a sense, like whatever's going on is not going to be, that's not going to be blamed on God mm. or the divine being. It, if I, I didn't know if that was an intentional nod to something. Um, I don't know if, if it's to, uh, totalitarian or something to do with, uh, with certainty and, and, uh, and faith, regardless of whether it's a secular faith or a, or a religious one. I wasn't implying much about Christianity itself in there. Um, it was given it's filtered through, well, given it's it's what John Leal in theory would have said for himself. Um, it was John Leal's take on Christianity um, and John Leal's take on belief systems. Well, I, I want to have you read another section. And partly the reason why I want you to read it is because it feels like I'm curious about your writing education or your writing interests, actually, because after encountering one amazing sentence after another amazing sentence, and then reading interviews where you say things like, I love the roll and crunch of syllables in my mouth, um, and where you've recorded yourself reading the book out loud so that you can play it back and listen to the sounds, um, and how you've wanted to achieve what Susan Sontag called lexical inevitability, that every single line would feel as if it couldn't be any other way. It made me wonder, well, it mainly made me wonder whether you had a background in poetry. Mm. And, and if not, what your background was that um, that brought you to the uh, sort of a love of the sentence in particular. Um, yeah, thank you so much for saying that. That means a lot to me. Um, I don't, I, I mean, I, I wrote a little poetry in high school the way I think a lot of writers do, but I, what I love reading most are, I mean, and I also love reading essay collections and story collections and poetry and all of it, but what I love reading most are, are novels. And I think to me, that was a clear indicator that that's what I wanted to write myself. Um, but a lot of the writers I do love the most um, are such 
I mean, I I can read a whole book by Virginia Woolf or Mavis Gallant, um, and they and every almost every sentence feels so exactly right. Um, and so I think that um, I think the writers I love are are the ones who taught me or showed me what was possible. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about your relationship with Virginia Woolf before you read? Sure. Because you have this book you won't name that you're superstitious. <laughs> you're superstitious about it. It's sort of like the patron. She's sort of the patron saint of this book in some respects. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, it was a book I reread um, every day for a few years. Um, and while I was working on this book and it, um, I would just like open it at random and read, you know, like a, a paragraph, maybe a page. Um, sometimes I would want a particular passage and I started to get to, to know the book well enough that I could, that I could just like open it without thinking and I would find the passage. Yeah. Um, and all, not all, but what it helped me do was it, it would just like help set the pitch for my writing day. Um, it would help pull me back into my writing and into the world of my novel. It would... I would read a paragraph and again, just be astonished by something she'd done with an image or, um, or a turn that she achieved in a sentence. Um, and the only reason I don't want to name it is because I'm just afraid that, that, I don't know, that like, she'll stop helping me. Not that I believe, I of course don't believe she's like real and out there, but I'm afraid that her work will stop helping me. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I don't want you to name it either, though I kind of want you to whisper it away from the microphone. <laughs> Uh, so do you want to introduce a, a section and maybe read a little bit so people can hear the prose? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, I'll read, I'll just read the first chapter, which is a couple pages long. One will. They'd have gathered on a rooftop in Knoxhurst to watch the explosion. Platt Hall, I think, 11 floors up. I know his ego and he'd have picked the tallest point he could. So often, I've imagined how they felt waiting. With six minutes left, the slant light of dusk reddened the high old spires of the college, the level gables of its surrounding town. They poured festive wine into big-bellied glasses. Handshaking, they laughed. She would sit apart from this reveling group, cross-legged on the roof's west ledge. Three minutes to go. Two. One. The Phipps building fell. Smoke plumed the breath of God. Silence followed, then the group's shouts of triumph. Wine glasses clashed together, flashing martial light. He sang the first spars of a Cheja psalm. Others soon joined in. Carolyn bells chimed, distant birds blowing white strewn, like dandelion tufts, an outsized wish. It must have been then that John Lyle came to her side. In his bare feet, he closed his arm around her shoulders. She flinched, looking up at him. I can imagine how he'd have tightened his hold, telling her she'd done well, though before long it would be time to act again, to do a little more. But this is where I start having trouble, Phoebe. Buildings fell. People died. You once told me I hadn't even tried to understand. So here I am, trying. Been listening to R.O. Kwan read from The Incendiaries. So it isn't uncommon for writers on their first book to spend a lot, of, a long time making their first book. Um, 
I've had many debut writers say that it's taken 10 years to write their first book. Um, but one of the reasons why yours took a long time, you've said, is that that you believe the first 20 pages had to be a perfect foundation and that you would then spend long periods of time working and reworking the sentences so that you'd have the right foundation when you move forward. So I was wanting you to uh, unpack the what are what you now consider false assumptions in that for us, if you could. Yeah, of course. Um, those were... Yeah, those were a tricky first couple of years with the book. Um, it's it's what I realized was so at the end of those two years, I had twenty pages that had been obsessively reworked, um, and it just felt so dead. Like it felt so inert. I'd never read such inert prose in my entire life. Is how I felt. Um, and I realized that I had been reworking these twenty pages without having much of an understanding of what would come next. And so it was the worst possible foundation for a book because it was this in what had become a very inflexible, um, compact thing that didn't, that, that couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't really go, go, go from there to anything else. Um, so I just threw it away and I started all over again with, with more or less the same characters. Yeah. So you've also said that you got hung up on metaphor and that metaphor can be quite dangerous. And I was, I, I wasn't entirely sure what you meant though. I'm compelled by it. <laughs> um, it, it was just, I, I got really sold on the idea of a metaphor that I was only telling myself that you can't build, um, you can't build a, you can't have a building without a foundation and the, and the foundation has to be solid, but this was the worst possible metaphor because, um, how do you build a foundation if you don't know what the rest of the building will look like? So it could be, you know, it could be a one bedroom apartment in a city, um, or it could be an opera house. And these are very different foundations. Um, but yeah, I was just like very, I was very convinced by my own metaphor. I just kept walking around muttering about foundations anytime. (laughs) (laughs) And you would ask what, why I was spending so long on those first 20 pages. (laughs) Well, I would really love to maybe do a little deep dive into the various ways you've, you've, um, prevented yourself from obsessing Mm -hmm. on sentences at the beginning so that you can move forward. So you, you've mentioned Lauren Groff as as someone who is pivotal and sort of breaking you out of this pattern. Yeah. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the strategies you use now, um, so that you, don't get stuck on making sure everything's perfect before you write the next thing. Yeah, of course. So she said, um, cause I met her right around that, um, two month, I mean, two month, two year mark at a writer's conference. Um, and she mentioned that she tends to spend like spin through a few drafts by hand writing as fast as she can. And she doesn't even reread, she doesn't even read them. She just throws them away and moves on. Um, so I tried doing that, but I, I would read that. I would read them and I would pull out the parts that felt alive to me, that felt, felt interesting to me and put them into a document and then try again. Um, after I did that a few times, I moved on to trying to write as fast as I could on a computer. I used an app um, or a program for my computer that turned my computer into a typewriter so I could only backspace one one letter at a time. Um, and what does that, what does that achieve? It means that I can only, if I can only backspace one letter and then I have to move forward again. It means I can't go back and copy and paste. I can't delete things. It just forces you to march forward more okay. or less. Um, all it lets you correct really is typos. Um, and so that was helpful. I. What's that program called? 
it, it was called typewriter, but I think it's gone. But I think there are other typewriters now that, sure. that replicate that. Um, I turned font the font white as I went. So as soon as I finished a paragraph, I would turn it white. So I just like to prevent myself from looking back. Um, what I, I love now, this is almost always how I draft anything now. Um, I'll write like four, six words at a time and then press enter and then just keep going down the page. Um, huh. And so it looks like a very ragged, sad, messy, epic poem. It's not. It's just that it's, it's, it's prose. It's just broken up so that I just visually cannot look at it and, and quite and e- as easily figure out what the sentence, sentence is doing. And, and then what about um, your feelings about Times New Roman versus Garamond? <laughs> I, I, I got so emphatic about this in another interview with the Chicago Review of Books that they published the interview with the headline. I think the headline was, <laughs> R.O. Kwan does not trust Garamon and neither should you. <laughs> um, I used to write in Garamon because it is so, it's, it's, it's so pretty. It's so, it, it, it makes everything look so nice. Um, and I realized that it was lying to me. It would, it would, I would look at a sentence and, in Garamon and then I'd look at it in another font and realize that it was a much worse sentence than I thought and Garamon had been dressing it up um and so i love writing in times new roman because it is just this like trustworthy quite ugly font it doesn't hide flaws the way garamond does um but you won't use comic sans i won't use comic sans i somebody told me that they use comic sans and i was just like good god almighty (laughs) who has that kind of strength of soul (laughs) to it would require a certain strength it does everything looks trivial in comic sans yeah yeah well, speaking of having um, the strength of soul, I, there was something that L- Laura Vanderberg said that I thought was interesting. She asked you about, when she was interviewing you, she asked you about faith and relationship to the act of writing, how writing, particularly something of novel length, requires an act of faith. How do you keep going? How do you push through hopelessness? How do you sit in the uncertainty of unfinishedness? So I was wondering if maybe you could talk about faith and relationship to some of these questions that she posed and now I'm posing? Yeah. Um, no, that's such a great question. I, I think the last time I spend worrying about larger questions, like, is this book going anywhere? Do I know what I'm, what I'm doing? What am I doing with my life? Why didn't I become a dermatologist? Um, it's a question that it became at some point a running joke in my household. Um, my, my husband would come home and I would just be de- dejected and I'd just be like, was a, the writing day was terrible. I don't know what I'm doing. How have I been working on this book for so long? Why didn't I become a dermatologist? And he would just like, he would ask, are we on that dermatologist question again? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the less time I spend wondering about these gigantic questions and the more time I spend on the page in a scene wondering what's this next line going to do? Um, what about the previous line? How do these two lines work together? What are the syllables doing? The better off I am. Um, and what's remarkable about that, I think, also is that you've said that in the 10 years you worked every day on the book. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I think there were, there were a few exceptions, but I tried very hard to work every day. I just find that for me, and I know people vary in their approaches, but, but for me, I'm... I'm, my writing's going better if I'm writing every day. I think it was you who quoted Dean Young, 
who says you have to sweep the temple steps a lot in hopes that God appears. Yeah. Was that? that... Yeah, it was definitely Dean Young. I don't remember the exact line, but, um, but yeah, yes. Yeah. I love quoting him. (laughs) (laughs) So, so to return to the book itself, one of the major things we haven't talked about yet is about terrorism and faith, Mm -hmm. a, a question that is central to the book. And you've pushed back against the automatic response that we tend to have to these acts when mm-hmm. people use language of incomprehension, when mm-hmm. people say, how could a person do this? This is unimaginable. These people aren't people, but monsters. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your desire to complicate or reject that sort of response to people who are doing uh, acts of terrorism in the name of a, of a faith or an ideology. I think... Um... I think in part because I I've, I I'm so different from the god crazed girl I was for a while. Um, I'm I was fascinated while writing this book, and I remain fascinated by the varieties, by how different people's definitions of good and of right can be. Um, and of course, we see this playing out every day in, in utterly heartbreaking ways in the news. Um, and I, and it remains fascinating to me. Um, and it's not that I've come to any real answers, but the questions remain fascinating to me of how, of how one person can define something as being good that other people can define as being just utterly evil and vice versa. Well, it, it was refreshing, um, to see a book that was looking at terrorism and faith and wasn't looking at Islam and terrorism, mm. uh, which is sort of the reflexive way that Americans would twin the two, because mm-hmm. we rarely would call Christian acts or, or Jewish acts of terrorism, terrorism. Mm-hmm. We'd call them something else mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if, were, were, was there any pushback in among the Christian community that you grew up in to, to name it in that way? I haven't come across any pushback. I mean, knock on wood. Um, I think if anything, people who are Christian, who have read the book, um, a lot of people have said that they appreciate how they, that they appreciate, um, the ways in which, Christianity itself and belief itself are not at all vilified um, or simplified. Yeah. Um, I do also get occasional emails from people um, proselytizing to me, which I find to be a little, (laughs) a little, um, a little, I'm more, my response to that is more, um, or rather I tend not to respond, but when people do, when I do receive emails like that, I'm just like, well, you know, um, you'll have to get in line because my mother's been praying for me every day since I, yeah. since I lost the faith. But. You don't hit spam on, on those emails. <laughs> <laughs> I put them in a folder. <laughs> well, I, I guess I wonder if part of, um, you know, the automatic response to not be able to comprehend these acts. And then this question, this time period of your life when you felt very certain about things, if, if, um, if there's a certain way of relating to certainty mm. and, and there's a way in which you can say, well, it is comprehensible. If you felt certain about these things, mm. like they, that can lead to any number of things. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you've quoted Eric Hoffer, the political philosopher mm-hmm. who said, uh, to be in possession of an absolute truth 
is to have a net of familiarity spread over the whole of eternity. Mm-hmm. And then you also quoted Julio Cortazar, who said, I've remained on the side of the questions, mm-hmm. which I feels like where you are now mm-hmm. on the side of the questions. Um, that, and I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about your aversion to certainty now, like mm-hmm. the way that it's something that makes you even afraid. Yeah. And it was something that brought you a lot of solace. Yeah, I think I, I am deeply allergic to certainty. Um, and I'm allergic to it so much that I'm still, I think I'm still open to the idea that maybe my allergy to certainty itself isn't correct. Um, I just, I think that a lot of harm has been done in the world by people who are certain they are right. Um, and that at least in the books I read and the people I love, um, a lot of the people who, I think that being open to the idea that one may not be in possession of absolute truths um, is is a less harmful way to go through the world, to move through the world. But I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, did, did you ever go through a period it sounds like maybe you didn't, but did you ever go through a period where you were into like the Christian existentialist philosophers, the ones who mm-hmm. like Paul Tillich, who were like, doubt is a prerequisite and even a part of faith? Like if you don't have doubt, that's not faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I read them. Um, I think I gained, well, I feel as though there are ways in which, um, there are ways in which like Simone Veil is, 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 mm is like shot like her writing a shot through it doubt and questions um but yeah i think i yeah i did i did read them i'm not sure that they stayed with me very much and how is you you've mentioned that you visited a church accused of being a cult as part of the research for the incendiaries Mm -hmm. so now that you're you know for a long time you've been on the side of the questions Mm -hmm. how how was that was that hard to do um how how did that go um, I visited, a, yeah, while I was researching this book, I visited um, a church in the Bay Area just a couple of times that had been accused of being a cult. Um, it's still running, you know, It, um, but anytime I go to um, a Christian service, I, and it, and, and that was true of this, of this particular church too. I just feel such, I just feel such longing. Like I feel such longing and I feel such um, sadness and I feel, and I just, yeah, it's like coming back to something that I miss very much um, and a being I miss very much. Mm. Is there, are there um, misconceptions, do you think, about the type of people who end up in, in churches accused of being cults mm. in terms of, um, uh, I, I mean, I would imagine that many people would just presume that people are naive or, mm-hmm. or ignorant when maybe it's not that. Yeah, that's that's a really lovely question. Um, I think that maybe people believe. Well, I, I really do. I don't. I don't like making generalizations. I think that's part of what I love about fiction is its adherence to the specific. Um, but I think perhaps people are more susceptible to cults and to demagogues in general. Um, as we can see in in America in 2018, then then they believe they themselves to be, mm-hmm. and uh, that yeah. certainty is incredibly appealing um, in ways that not everyone necessarily under- recognizes. 
Yeah, they don't recognize the the cults that they're in right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a a very mysterious scene in the book when Will goes to Beijing, and I really love how you handle it. Speaking of um, complexity and and mystery that fiction can do, so you don't give us Will's motivations. We're deprived of his motivations. And we're not really oriented to the scenario entirely. But he sees a girl on the street. He follows her. His following her terrifies her. And then when he realizes he terrifies her, he doesn't leave her be, but he pursues her to explain himself. And it's sort of impossible to know if this is just the bumbling, ignorant, and ham-fisted curiosity of a young uh, guy or something more predatory. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't really, it's very unsettling and you just leave it there. Mm-hmm. And I love that you just leave it there. It's not, we're, we're not going to know really. Um, but we do get in the book several overt instances of sexual assault, either referred to or dramatized. And you've talked about how you almost took the pivotal scene out. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to hear about that. I want yeah. to hear about how this this scene wants to insinuate itself into the book. And then there was a part of you that didn't want it to be there. Yeah. So with the pivotal um, scene of sexual violence that um, I always try to be careful talking about it because I know people hate spoilers. But I know and it's anyone who's read the book will know which scene I'm talking about. Yeah, it's um, probably good that you don't <laughs> don't spoil that. One. Um, I when I have started writing that scene and when I started realizing what was going what might what was going to happen um I tried writing a lot of versions of the scene in which it didn't happen and they just kept ringing terribly false to me um and so I went back I reread everything I had up until then um and I realized there were ways in which the character the perpetrator of of the sexual assault the ways there are ways in which he prioritizes his own needs and desires um sometimes at the expense of others. Um, and there are ways in which he views women and there are ways in which he, there are ways in which he, um, there are ways in which he moves through the world that made this pivotal scene of sexual assault, um, feel like the most truthful rendition of what would happen in that moment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it did. I was, I was, I was, I was, distraught that, that um I I in in a lot of ways I really do love these characters um and I was I was just so disappointed um in 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 this character yeah well you've said you've, you're deeply suspicious of violent violent acts in fiction <laughs> which I would I want to know why and also I would imagine that's part of my part of your anxiety that the the book is now going to move a certain mm. way because of uh, a violent act. But why, why are you suspicious of violent acts in the first place in a narrative? That's a, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, I love that juxtaposition. Um, so I just, I, I am suspicious of, I don't like to feel the plot strings being jerked. Um, and I find that, so this makes me often, especially with like big blockbuster Hollywood movies, the, least fun person to watch a movie with um because I really will just yell I work too hard and like run out of the room I'm very bad to go to movie theaters with um because if I'm if I start feeling manipulated I'll just leave um and I'll say stay I'll be I'll be in the lobby I'm just gonna read (laughs) um and and so in fiction I really don't want to 
I, I don't I never want a reader to feel manipulated. I never want a reader to feel as though they can just like feel the puppet strings being moved. Um I don't want readers to feel as though I'm putting in violent acts for the sake of I don't even know, for the sake of keeping things interesting, for the thing for the sake of um keeping the stakes high. I hate thinking about stakes. I hate thinking about all of it. And so um and so yeah, I just I want I want things to feel as when I'm writing, I want things to feel as truthful as they can possibly be. I want things to feel as though they couldn't possibly have unfolded any other way. So you've written this piece, this great piece, called Why I Don't Leave the House Without Putting on Black Eyeshadow. Uh, and, and you talk in there about why you invariably wear a considerable amount of eyeshadow below your eyes. And in it you say... One friend tells me the dashes of black make me look like an especially fierce superhero. Another says she thought for a moment that I'd been punched in the face. A third, to my delight, says he's put in mind of a Blade Runner replicant. Most, though, ask, why? What's going on? There's the easy answer I've given from the start. Anytime I'm asked about the change, I explain that I began wearing black eyeshadow during a period in my life when I realized that how I looked was ill-matched to how I felt. I was sad, I say, and I kept being mistaken for being happy, which became maddening. And I couldn't help but wonder how gendered this response of being mistaken as being happy is thinking of how men are always asking women to smile or expecting mm. women to smile. And I wondered if much like your book creates a space, if the eyeshadow is also sort of a way of creating a space, a distance, like a don't assume, you know, me space. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's such a great question. Um, it, it was like a surprising a surprisingly large number of people, especially women, I think, reacted to this piece and felt and felt that I had said something that they that that that, that they were also recognized in their own and how they also move about the world. Um, and I feel as though there is some extent to which it's a shield, almost, um, mm-hmm. or yeah, maybe a way. Of, I, I don't know. I, people have maybe a way of saying this is people have. Um, told me about all the ways in which they also try to convey similar, um, similar, in which they also have similarly complicated feelings about how they present to the world. Um, and some people have tattoos, um, other people, um, one woman said that she, this is exactly the reason why she likes to wear leather jackets. There's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So you, you've said that your next book is about women, artists, ambition, and sex. So I was wondering if maybe you could share a little bit about it. Um, it's I'm like two, two and a half years into it. Um, but since December, I haven't been able to focus on it the way um, the way I did with The Incendiaries. Um, and so it's still very raw all over the place. Um, my... Yeah, my, my agent has been asking when she gets to, when would not get. So she's been she's been asking when I'm going to show it to her, and I'm just like, not for a while, not for a while, <laughs> not yet. But um, 
But yeah, so that's a long way of saying that I still don't really know what to say about it other than that it's 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 um it still feels very new, which is ridiculous. I've been working on it for two years. Well, it's <laughs> new on a certain time frame. Yeah. <laughs> what about can you speak about the anthology you're editing with yeah. with Garth? Yes, of course. Um that's um so it's called Kink. I'm co-editing it with um Garth Greenwell and it's being published by Simon and Schuster in the summer of 2020. It was bought by Ira Silverberg. Um and it's about um, it's all fiction, um, and we and it includes writers including um, Carmen Maria, Maria Machado and Roxanne Gay um, and uh, Chris Kraus, um, Lydia Aknovich. Just so many writers. I'm wow. so excited about. Um, it's also predominantly, and this makes me so happy. It's predominantly um, it's predominantly woman. I mean, there are more women than men. There are more people of color than than pe- people who are not of color. There are more LGBTQ people than there are, are straight people. I'm just, I, I, yeah, everything about this makes me so happy. And it, um, it's, um, I think it'll be really wonderful. And I, oh, and they'll all be, um, almost all the pieces will be original. And so oh, it, most, most of it hasn't been written yet. Yeah. Well, it was great having you on Between the Covers today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We're talking today to Aro Kwan about her debut novel, The Incendiaries. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of R.O. Kwan's work can be found at ro-kwan.com. I've also uploaded audio of R.O. Kwan reading her essay, I Believe in Skincare, which I hope to listen to while wearing the C. Buckthorn cleansing mask she gifted me at the end of the interview. This bonus audio joins material by Carmen Maria Machado, Vicky Now, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Horace Gander, Tommy Pico, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog is Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.